Today's story is full of holes. Every disappearance has them. Blank spaces in the narrative. You know something important goes in each space, and it feels like if you could just fill one in, the rest would follow. All the way back to the first. The space where the missing person should be. But what happens when the reason for all of the not knowing is someone intentionally redacted the story? But not a family member, not an abductor, and not the missing. What if the reason for all the holes could be the federal government? I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, I'll discuss a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today, I'd like you to meet a 21-year-old West Point cadet who signed out for dinner on January 14, 1950 and never signed back in. There was a massive manhunt to find him. The army, the police, and the FBI all got involved, but none of them were able to prove whether he was the victim of a crime or if he left by choice. His name is Richard Cox. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Today's story starts out with plenty of details. We know a lot about Richard Cox. Or at least we seem to. Let's start on January 5th, 1950. In Mansfield, Ohio, Minnie Colvin Cox opens her mailbox to a letter. It's from Richard, her youngest child. He's away at the West Point Military Academy, studying to become an officer in the Army. A few days ago, he was home on winter break, but Minnie isn't surprised to have a letter. Richard writes a lot, and by the sound of things, he's already feeling homesick. Here's a small part of the letter. He says, Slowly, I'm getting acclimated again. I don't know if this place is worth the work that you have to go through here. But being young, I'm probably wrong. So I'll sit tight and study like a good little cadet for another two and a half decades. Thanks, Ben, for being the perfect mother while I was home. You sure treat me better than I deserve. Richard clearly isn't happy about starting the new semester, but don't let that fool you. At West Point, he's well-respected 
and in the top third of his class academically. Other cadets voted him top yearling, meaning the overall best sophomore in his company. To be fair, Richard has a bit more experience than most of his peers. After high school, he volunteered for the army and was deployed in Germany during the post-World War II Allied occupation. And Richard must have done an impressive job because he quickly rose to the rank of sergeant. Richard's pretty successful in his personal life too. He's got a fiance back home in Mansfield named Betty Timmons. They came close to eloping once, but ultimately decided to wait until Richard graduates. Based on his writing, he seems to really love Betty. In one letter to his mother, he writes, After those years of not knowing she was alive, I finally woke up to the second best thing that ever happened to me. The first being that I'm your son. All things considered, Richard is the perfect son, perfect fiance, and perfect future officer. He never forgets to write home, and he always calls his sisters on their birthdays. At least until the week of January 7th, when Richard gets a visitor. It's late afternoon on a Saturday. A gloom has settled over the bank of the Hudson River in upstate New York, the site of West Point's sprawling campus. A cadet named Haynes is on duty answering phones and overseeing the orderly room, which is like a main office for Richard's company, Company B. At about 4.45 p.m., Cadet Haynes gets a call from the campus hotel. The man on the other end asks if there's a Dick Cox in the company. His voice is kind of rough and casual, almost patronizing, but Haynes tells him that he'll look for Richard. Richard isn't in his room, which is pretty normal. When Haynes explains this to the man on the phone, he responds, When he comes in, tell him to come on down here to the hotel. Just tell him George called. He'll know who I am. We knew each other in Germany. About 30 minutes later, Richard walks in. Haynes passes on the message and Richard seems surprised. He doesn't remember a George from Germany, but he says he'll go down to the hotel anyway. Then before he gets the chance, George shows up at the barracks looking for Richard. He looks about five foot 11 and 185 pounds. He has a short haircut, full face and a light colored coat. And when the cadet manning the front desk, Moro Maresca calls Richard downstairs to collect his guest, Maresca notices that he and George greet each other like old friends. They talk for about 10 minutes, then head out to eat at the hotel. It's now 5.45 p.m. Richard is next seen a little over an hour later, just after seven. His roommate, Joe Urschel, is in their dorm room writing a letter when Richard enters in just a towel, presumably coming from the showers. He's in a good mood. Joe thinks he seems very happy and carefree. Richard gets dressed, then sits down to reread an old letter from Betty. Within minutes, he puts his head down on the desk and falls asleep. 30 minutes later, the lights out bugle comes over the loudspeaker. It startles Richard awake. Totally disoriented, he runs out into the hall shouting, who's down there? Is that you, Alice? Richard's roommates, Joe and Dean, drag him back into the room, which is when they notice he smells like liquor. They're surprised at how strong it is because Richard is a notoriously light drinker. He has a reputation for passing out after only two beers. 
While putting him to bed, Dean asks Richard who Alice is. And Richard mumbles, some girl my friend mentioned. Still drunk, Richard tosses the folded sheets off his cot, flops down in his clothes, and falls asleep. The next morning, Dean and Joe ask Richard about what happened. He admits he never made it to the hotel restaurant. He says the guy visiting him wouldn't let him leave until he had a few drinks. So they ended up just drinking whiskey in his car. Now, I'm going to keep calling this visitor George, since that's the name he gave when he called. But Richard never actually mentions his name. He just calls him my friend. But the thing is, Joe and Dean don't think he sounds like a friend. Over the next week, Richard keeps complaining about him, how George is taking up all his time and won't let him study. Slowly, they start to build a mental picture of this character, and it's more than a little concerning. According to Richard, George is a former US Army Ranger who fought in World War II before they were stationed in Germany together. Apparently, he likes to brag about a lot of horrific behavior, like castrating the bodies of dead Nazi soldiers, he also told Richard that he got a German girl pregnant, then murdered her so she wouldn't have the child. Understandably, Richard seems uncomfortable, maybe even a little scared of George. He makes offhanded comments about his friend being capable of almost anything, and how he hopes to never see him again. But he does. Less than one week later, on January 14th, Richard is spotted near the barracks talking to him. George is wearing a trench coat, and after their conversation, Richard heads back to his dorm room. He tells Dean he's skipping evening meal to have dinner with his guest at the hotel on campus. Dean doesn't notice anything unusual about Richard's behavior. If anything, he seems annoyed about the obligation. Richard puts on his nicest uniform, says to expect him back around nine, and heads downstairs. But that night, Richard's bed is empty. And the next day at morning formation, there's a gap in the line of cadets. Richard's last written words in the Company B departure log say, quote, Destination DP Hotel. Time out, 1745. End quote. Meaning a quarter to six. The time infield is blank. It's an empty space that never gets filled. Because Richard never returns. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It's January 16th, 1950. Richard's mother, Minnie, is at home in Mansfield, Ohio when she gets a call from West Point. A man introduces himself as Major Harmeling, West Point's chief investigator. He tells her Richard is missing. The rest of the conversation is brief. He asks her, do you know where Richard is? Has he tried to contact her? And more strangely, has he ever mentioned a visitor? 
After Minnie answers no to everything, Major Harmeling thanks her and promises he'll be in touch soon. They hang up and Minnie takes a moment, wondering what to do next. She considers calling Richard's siblings to see if they've heard from him, but why worry them prematurely? Instead, she rereads her letters from Richard, searching for clues to where he might have gone. Back at West Point, the search for Richard is mobilizing. Investigators suspect that Richard may have had an accident. Maybe he went for a walk in the woods, fell and twisted his ankle. If that's true, finding him won't be easy. West Point's campus spans 16,000 acres, many of which are heavily wooded. Plus, after a recent storm, the grounds are covered in a thick blanket of snow. But officials do what they can. They search the cadet barracks, then every building on campus. There's no sign of Richard. But they do find an unfinished letter in his room. It's addressed to his fiancée, Betty. He sounds frustrated, almost at the end of his rope. He writes, quote, Still goddamn January. I asked Minnie what she'd think or do if I gave this place the boot it deserves, go to a business or insurance school for two years, and then sponge off of her until I caught on to the cruel ways of the world. I've yet to discover what I'll have lost by leaving the dear old core. End quote. Now, this sounds like more than your average griping. So naturally, investigators begin asking everyone, his roommates, professors, and family, if Richard ever mentioned leaving West Point. And they all say no, he wouldn't do that. As far as they're concerned, he was committed to seeing it through. And here's the thing, if Richard really wanted to quit so badly, he could have. West Point cadets are sworn members of the military, and legally subject to military law. But while leaving the school without permission could qualify as desertion, there was nothing stopping him from resigning. And here's the other thing. While digging through his stuff, investigators find $60 in cash, an uncashed check, and a gold wristwatch. All items you'd expect Richard to take with him if he chose to leave for good. So where is he? That afternoon, two days after Richard was last seen, a 13-state alarm goes out across the entire eastern seaboard. The headline is, Cadet Richard Colvin Cox, wanted for absence without leave. Within days, the search for Richard expands into a massive joint operation between West Point, the military, the Army's Criminal Investigation Division, the New York State Police, and the FBI. J. Edgar Hoover, the head of the FBI, sends out a memo demanding the agents give the case special attention and keep him updated about any developments. A popular radio host starts signing off his shows saying, Richard Cox, call your mother. When the snow eventually melts, West Point conducts a full search of its grounds. Lines of cadets work their way through miles of dense woods. They drain a nearby pond and drag the river to see if Richard's body is at the bottom. But they don't find anything. More and more, it's looking like there's only one person who can help find the missing cadet. Richard's mysterious visitor. 
Richard's classmates share everything they can remember about this guy. Maybe 5'11", 185 pounds, short hair, full face, answers to George. Allegedly a former army ranger with Richard. May have bragged about killing a pregnant woman. Officials comb through files of all men stationed in Germany with Richard. They don't find any Georges. But there are a few who match his general description. So they track them all down one by one. Each has an alibi that places them far away from West Point on January 14th. In the meantime, investigators are digging into Richard's former army assignment. And a few details catch their eye. He was a part of a prestigious intelligence unit stationed near the Iron Curtain in 1947, just as the Cold War was heating up. It's now 1950, and America is in a full-on Red Scare. So, some investigators can't help but wonder if Richard disappeared because of something he knew. This possibility that Richard was killed or kidnapped by Russian spies has been a huge part of the narrative of Richard's case since the beginning, almost to the point of overwhelming it. But honestly, I think it's a stretch. We don't know what happened to Richard. We don't know the specifics of his assignment in Germany. It's tempting to want to connect the two, draw some meaning from them, because they're both such significant events. But there's just not enough evidence. And often, the truth is the last thing you see coming. In September of 1951, Richard's roommates, Joe and Dean, are contacted by officials from the army. At this point, they're used to being questioned. But this is different. Today, investigators don't want to talk. They tell the cadets they're going on a ride-along. They drive Joe and Dean into New York City, to the neighborhood of Greenwich Village. The plan is to stake out some bars, cocktail lounges, and nightclubs that Richard apparently frequented in the past. If Richard did leave West Point by choice, maybe he's been hiding out the whole time. And if they're lucky, he'll be at one of these bars tonight. But these aren't just any bars. At each location, the cadets notice men interacting intimately with other men, and Joe and Dean realize they're at underground gay clubs. The investigators brought them here because they think Richard is gay. Now, nobody sees Richard at any of the bars that night. And afterwards, Joe and Dean tell investigators they've got it all wrong. They know Richard. He's a ladies' man, engaged to a woman, they would know if he was gay. But I doubt investigators buy it. See, what Joe and Dean don't know is that at this point, officials have received multiple tips about Richard's history with men. One came from an out gay man who knew Richard before West Point. Another from an old army friend. He says he and Richard once bumped into each other at one gay nightclub in Greenwich Village and spent the night together. Another came from an old teacher who was fired for counseling students like Richard who struggled with their sexuality. Now, I'm not here to overspeculate on anyone's sexuality, but this is important. If Richard was struggling with his sexual identity, his roommates likely wouldn't know because Richard couldn't afford to tell them. Remember, this is 1950. Being gay or bisexual in the United States isn't just stigmatized. It has the potential to end a person's career, 
especially in the military. If Richard is interested in men, his life at West Point has to be incredibly stressful. If he's found out, he'll go home in disgrace. And if he stays, he faces a long future of constantly looking over his shoulder. If investigators were right and Richard was gay, it could explain him leaving. It gives him motive, a reason to just walk away from his bright future. What it doesn't explain is what happens next. His never being found, dead or alive. The army and FBI scoured the country looking for him and came up short. To stay hidden, he'd need somewhere to go. Which brings me to some important details, crucial pieces of information that have stayed hidden for a long time after Richard went missing, inside classified government archives. And they might have stayed hidden forever if it weren't for the 1966 Freedom of Information Act and the work of a few persistent researchers. In July 1956, Minnie Cox opens her mailbox to a letter. It's from J. Edgar Hoover, the director of the FBI. It says, quote, Regarding Richard C. Cox, at this time, we are checking our files and will appreciate your letting us know whether the location of the above person is still desired of you. If so, the notice will of course be continued in file." End quote. This letter gives Minnie pause. It's been more than six years. At seven, she knows the state of Ohio will declare her son legally dead. But there's still a few months left. She's not giving up on her son before she has to. So, Minnie says to keep the file open. But nothing changes. Eventually, Richard is declared dead. The FBI closes his case, and there's nothing Minnie can do about it. She can't make authorities care as much as she does. She has to let it go. But what Minnie doesn't know at the time is closing Richard's case could have more to do with what the FBI did find and less to do with what they didn't. These final pieces of Richard's story come from the work of Joe Underwood, a reporter who received Richard Cox's story in the 1980s, and Marshall Jacobs, a private researcher. Using the Freedom of Information Act, they were able to obtain Richard's declassified files. They arrived heavily redacted. Names, paragraphs, and whole sections were marked out with thick black bars. Altogether, the missing information could fill 165 pages. But between those black bars, Joe and Marshall found evidence that Richard Cox's official story didn't end in 1950. There have been at least two noteworthy sightings of Richard Cox after he disappeared, one of which came from a witness who actually knew Richard. It's March 1952. In Washington, D.C., Coast Guard officer Ernest Shotwell is in town for the weekend and stops by the Greyhound Post restaurant to meet up with some old co-workers. While he's eating at the counter, he glances over and sees a young man sitting alone at a table by the window. He's around 24 years old, with brown hair and blue eyes. And Ernest knows him. So he shouts, Cox, you are Dick Cox then crosses to the table he's sitting at. The man looks up, startled, but as Ernest sits down, he nods. Yes, he says, meaning he is Richard Cox. 
Ernest knows Richard from Stuart Field, the prep school Richard attended between the Army and West Point. Shotwell never passed the West Point exams, so he joined the Coast Guard and they basically haven't seen each other since. Ernest is vaguely aware that Richard was reported missing about two years earlier, but with Richard sitting in front of him, he assumes the authorities already found him and sorted everything out. They talk briefly. Ernest asks why Richard is not at West Point. Richard says that he resigned last year. Ernest asks what he's up to now. And Richard says he's working for himself and about to move to Germany. Then there's a bit of small talk before Richard excuses himself and leaves. It isn't until two years later that Ernest sees a magazine article about Richard and finds out that to the rest of the world, his friend is still missing. So he contacts the FBI. The FBI does find it suspicious that Ernest would wait so long to report a sighting. But when they send agents down to that diner with pictures of Richard, the cashier recognizes him. They basically say, yeah, a man who looked like that used to come in for breakfast every now and then. The next big sighting happens on May 16, 1960. The story comes from an unnamed FBI informant who all call Jason. Jason's drinking at the Show Bar Tavern in Melbourne, Florida, when he spots a woman apparently drinking alone. He tries to strike up a conversation, but she says she's actually not alone. She's waiting on friends. And before Jason can politely exit, her friends arrive. One introduces himself as R.C. Mansfield. This strikes Jason as a little weird because who introduces themselves with their initials? But it strikes me as weird for a different reason. Mansfield's the town where Richard was born and raised. And R.C.? Those are his initials. Anyway, Jason keeps drinking with the group. And when he mentions he's an ex-Marine, R.C. Mansfield says he used to be in the army himself. He can't go back though, because as far as the army and his mother are concerned, he's dead. Then after a few more drinks, R.C. apologizes and tells Jason that his name isn't Mansfield. It's Cox. From there, the conversation turns political. Richard, if it is Richard, starts going on and on about Cuba and Fidel Castro. He thinks Fidel Castro won't be in power much longer. Before leaving, he asks Jason to put him in touch with some of his acquaintances. It's not clear what this means, but from the context, my best guess is that they're some sort of underworld figures. Now, this is all really strange. I wouldn't blame anyone for writing it off as a false sighting, but I mention it because the FBI files suggest that they took this report very seriously. After the tip comes in, their Miami office sends an urgent telegram to J. Edgar Hoover about how Richard Colvin Cox has been seen in Florida. A team of agents travels to the area, conducts a search, and advises Jason to contact them should Richard ever resurface which he doesn't. But what makes this so plausible for me is the timing. In 1960, Richard Cox's story hadn't been in the media for some time. Yes, Jason could have made everything up based on information from old articles, but why go through the trouble? I don't have an answer for that. So let's pause and take stock for a second. If these two stories are real, it's possible that Richard was involved in some kind of intelligence work. 
When he ran into Ernest, Richard said that he was moving to Germany, but he was cagey about what he'd be doing there. Leaving the country as a missing person would be incredibly difficult. Unless he had a fake passport, which would be hard to get on his own. In Florida, Richard seemed to be trying to build underworld connections, which would make sense if he was on an undercover assignment. He also talked about how he thought Castro won't be in power long. And this was right before the Bay of Pigs, a time when the CIA was plotting Castro's downfall and was very active in Florida. And it's not just these two sightings that possibly connect Richard to intelligence work. If you actually go back through everything, the theory neatly fills in a lot of holes in his story. At the time of his disappearance, the CIA was just three years old and heavily recruiting. As a former member of an elite army intelligence unit and a promising West Point cadet, Richard would have been a natural candidate. Maybe you're asking yourself, but why would the FBI spend so much time looking for him then? Well, the FBI and CIA were actually notoriously competitive in their early years. The idea that the CIA might keep Richard hidden from other government agencies actually wouldn't be that surprising. Plus, this theory creates a possible explanation for Richard's mysterious visitor. George could have been a CIA recruiter, or the person who put Richard in touch with the CIA. And if Richard was gay, intelligence could have seemed like a more comfortable place to serve his country. Somewhere where one secret could coexist alongside all the other secrets in his life. I'm not saying that's what happened, just that it's a possibility. It's also very possible that it's all coincidence, circumstantial. I know how easy it can be to fill in blank spaces with hope rather than logic, but we're talking about the CIA. Sometimes circumstantial evidence is the best you can get. Unless you can find a source to corroborate your theory. Before I go any further, let me be clear. What I'm about to tell you is not verified. It was reported by Marshall Jacobs, the private researcher who first got the US government to release its files on the Richard Cox investigation. This information was not in those files. According to Marshall Jacobs, a retired senior CIA official named Walter Robinson told him this story in person. On January 14, 1950, Richard Cox left West Point Military Academy of his own volition. Not long afterwards, he was recruited by the CIA. Richard spent the next few years in France and Germany working undercover, and he literally became a hero. During one mission, he helped smuggle scientists who were critical to the Soviet nuclear project out of Russia, potentially changing the course of history as we know it. Years later, he returned to the United States and retired somewhere in northern Idaho. He most likely passed away due to cancer sometime in the 1990s. Okay, so I want to believe this story. That by disappearing, Richard turned his secrets into his greatest asset. That he found a way to be his true self while serving his country. Maybe even reunited with his family after returning to the United States. Maybe at a certain point, Minnie knew more than she let on. 
I hope so. It really would be a near-perfect ending. And by now, you know that rarely happens on this show. Is it the truth? I can't say, because I just don't know. And I'm gonna leave it at that. Next episode. In 1928, Glenn and Bessie Hyde set out for an adventure down the Colorado River and are never seen again. For years, the assumption is they drowned until one woman's story rewrites their ending with a shocking twist. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to listen to this episode, 30 people disappeared in the United States alone. If you or someone you know needs assistance with a missing person case, please visit seasonofjustice.org. Season of Justice is a nonprofit organization that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. For full disclosure, I am a member of the board. It's a great resource for both law enforcement and families in order to bring closure to those impacted by unsolved violent crime. You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Disappearances stars Sarah Turney and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Alex Button, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Disappearances was written by Andrew Kelleher, with writing assistance by Nora Battelle and Connor Sampson, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice.